Hello and welcome to the Print Pod. This is Zoya and I bring to you our latest offering from Anirudh Kanisetti, public historian and author of Lords of the Deccan, A New History of Medieval South India. This article is part of the Thinking Medieval series which takes a deep dive into India's medieval culture, politics and history. It is not something one expects to come across in a dry collection of Buddhist monastic rules, but here it is. He said, I have been seized by a debt collector. Who is the debt collector? He said, a nun. The history of Buddhism is very often thought about as a history of intrepid men, from the Buddha to the hundreds of monks, preachers and translators who carried their doctrines to the corners of the world. Partially due to a lack of sources, partially because the compilers of texts tended to be men, and partially because we haven't looked for them, the voices of Buddhist women have been lost to us. But new research reveals that they had brilliant commercial and religious minds, shaping the financial fortunes of the Buddhist Sangha. History, as always, is more complex than we might think. In his path-breaking 2014 collection of papers, Buddhist nuns, monks and other worldly matters, Gregory Chopin, a professor of Buddhist studies at the University of California, analyzed a somewhat ignored Buddhist text, the Vinaya, or rules pertaining to monastic discipline of the Mool Sarvastivada school. It was compiled by male monks at a time when Buddhist sects had spread far and wide through the subcontinent, perhaps as late as 200 to 400 CE almost 800 years after the death of the Buddha, at a time when it was just one religion among many. The general formula of the Vinaya is, a story is narrated, the Buddha is supposedly consulted and he then supposedly declares a monastic rule. In reality, of course, senior monks were probably coming up with rules for their own particular social and cultural contexts. This Vinaya spends a considerable amount of time discussing a nun, Bhikkuni, named Sthulananda, a resident of Shravasti, once a major city located in present-day Uttar Pradesh. On one occasion, Sthulananda finds out that a wealthy man has fallen terminally ill and is giving away his wealth to ascetics and Brahmins and the poor and needy. She immediately arrives at his house, recites a Buddhist text and asks him for a gift. Since he has given away all his possessions already, he offers her a promissory note written by someone who owes him money. Sthulananda then goes to the debtor and demands that he repay the loan. The unfortunate man is unable to do so and she promptly drags him to court, causing a scandal. The next occasion where we come across Sthulananda is after she has convinced a householder to build her a nice little retreat where she has taken up residence with some other nuns. While wandering around in an evening drizzle, she comes across a group of South Indian merchants sitting drenched in the rain who morosely inform her that they haven't been able to rent a place to stay. Sons, she says, you must know that it will be like at night. Giving even more rent, you must find a place. This will be ruinous for your merchandise and if it gets drenched by the rain, no one will buy it. The merchants say that even at twice the going rate, they haven't been able to find a place. Sthulananda then demands that they pay her even more than that, drives the other nuns away from her residence and lets the merchant stay there. And finally, in yet another instant, Sthulananda hears about a wealthy dying man, goes scurrying to his deathbed and asks him for a pious gift. Having nothing left to give but a single house, he offers it to her. She then waits for the family who were living there to leave for the wealthy man's funeral and locks and seals the house. When they return, she informs them that she owns the house and only opens it up after they have agreed to pay rent. 
Of course, the compilers of the Vinaya regard all this with dis- disapproval. But even if Stulananda was not based on an actual person, we must assume that at least some nuns were engaging in business activities of this sort. Otherwise, there would have been no need for a rule against them. As Professor Chopin points out, it is also significant that it was legally possible for nuns to do all this. Clearly, there was some conception of women having property rights and they were recognized as independent persons by the legal system in some part of the Gangetic Plains. It is also surprising how many nun-directed activities the Vinaya rules against. Many of these were traditionally performed by women. For example, nuns were completely banned from underwriting brothels or financing sex workers. Of course, it is also debatable how Buddhist such activities were. But the issue was also taken up with activities that seemed less controversial to us, such as garland making, growing and weaving. However, one can imagine that the nuns had good reasons for trying to invest in what other women were doing. Though they had some legal protections, ancient and medieval India were, like today's India, not the kindest places for women. Significantly for us, the Vinaya is not equally disapproving of all nun-driven entrepreneurship. Talking, taking someone to court, as Tulananda is opposed to have done, was grounds for forfeiture of all assets as well as being driven from the Buddhist Sangha. But setting up a tavern was only as bad as, say, eating a mango and might at most earn one a scolding. And crucially, if the nun was in need or if the prophets were to go to the Sangha, then there was no offence at all. This, possibly, is one of the reasons behind Buddhism's dazzling success, century after century. While male monasteries were generally situated at some distance from settlements, female nunneries were in the thick of urban centres and nuns were deeply involved in society. They blessed children, participated in rituals of the lay community, and as the monastic rules suggest, indulged in commerce for the benefit of the Sangha. Nunneries were secure complexes in the heart of a city, which secular and religious authorities would think twice before bullying. They were the perfect sites for storing goods for sale, as Tulananda seems to have recognised above. The Vinaya is also well aware of financial instruments. In another story, monks were given a large endowment. They lock it up because they don't know how to invest it, and so their monastery falls into disrepair. They then try to give it out as loans, which fails because they lend either to the poor and needy or to the rich and powerful. Finally, the Buddha supposedly declares a rule that a loan is only to be given out when twice its value is handed over as collateral. A signed, sealed, dated and witnessed contract is to be issued with the names of senior monastic officials and the borrower, together with the amount and interest. There is little hint of lending or donating for charity, notes Chopin. This is all strictly business and certainly there must have been defaulters and exploitative monastic landlords within such a system. Not every Buddhist school was as encouraging of monastic businesses as the Mool Sarvastivada, but at least some of them were. In Andhra, dating to around the same time, we have examples of monasteries that seem to have held enormous properties on par with or more than royal families. In Nagarjunakonda, an ancient city and sacred site near the present-day Andhra-Telangana border, archaeologist Himanshu Prabha Ray reported in his book The Winds of Change, Buddhism and the Maritime Links of Early South Asia, the presence of storage rooms and inscriptions commemorating valuable donations as well as coin molds to issue currency. At Bavi Konda and Thotla Konda near present-day Vishakapatnam, hordes of local and foreign currency were found. Buddhism, like all successful religions, grew not because it was emancipatory but because it could do business well and, when needed, ruthlessly.
it was because of its wealth that it became possible for it to innovate one of the most important ritual practices in the subcontinent the community worship of sacred images and buildings we will return to this in future editions of thinking medieval that's all for now stay tuned for more